Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. To an outsider, the United States looks like it's in political meltdown. In what seems like months, the farce of the US elections has dwarfed coverage of huge coronavirus deaths, with most political pundits predicting a Biden victory. But with talk of potential challenge to the result, all signs indicate the possibility of a protracted period of uncertainty. American democracy today seems to be sinking under its contradictions, inequalities and culture wars that undermine the fabric of its political standing in the world. The city on the hill today looks like a failed model. This week, I speak to Mohammed Hanini from the United States. Brother Hanini has a BA in Islamic history and a master's in Islamic studies with a focus on fiqh. Brother Muhammad is currently a lecturer at American Open University for Usul al-Fiqh and Islamic Contracts. He conducts classes in the local masjid in Raleigh, North Carolina, and lectures for the Al-Arkham Institute online, currently co-presenting an illuminating course on Usul al-Fiqh. I wanted to get a picture of the politics of the country and how Muslims in America are approaching the election. Brother Muhammad Hanini, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, and welcome to the Thinking Muslim podcast. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. Thank you. Brother Hanini, thank you for joining us today. And I, I really want to get your perspective on what's going on in America. I mean, from where I'm standing, uh, it seems to me that America is descending into into chaos and the politics of America has really descended into something quite unsavory with the rise of uh, uh, of uh, white supremacy and what seems to be uh, a, a a very fractious political uh, uh, landscape. So I really want to ask you what's going on in in America. Can you give me your your perspective of uh, why politics in America has ended up like this? Um, as you know, there have always been differences of view and partisan politics in the U.S. Um, this is nothing new. Um, and it, of course, it, you, it became more glaring and more apparent uh, during the days of Obama uh, for eight years 
where the Republican Party tried their utmost to block every plan, every um, every program he wanted to introduce. So it was it was the, this has always been the case. Uh, but what kept it manageable? What kept it um, more or less civil um, and and covered with some some uh, thin layer of civility was the adherence to what they recognized both parties, the Republicans and Democrats, as political norms, and they maintained that the squabble within the realm of politics, meaning neither party questioned the legitimacy or the integrity, the impartiality of the U.S. institutions. So they did not, um, they did not question the, the infrastructure, the, the setup, the institutions that hold the political um, uh, arena together until, of course, Trump came about. And uh, when he came out, he came out attacking the very institutions that hold the country together. So he did not just attack the Democrats as being, you know, um, you know, too liberal, too conservative, things of this nature, um, you know, or trying to, to block or present. He actually attacked the institutions that hold the United States together. He attacked the FBI. He attacked the CIA. He attacked the NSA, the National uh, Security Agency. He attacked the Justice Department, the State Department. Uh, he attacked the media. With the, he came up with his phrase, fake news. Uh, so no one has been saved. And nothing... Um, that all the, the institutions that hold the country together have been put in question and question in terms of their partiality or impartiality, their legitimacy. Um, so um, that really unhinged the, the whole system. Uh, it's because he went outside of the, the accepted, the norm or the norms of, of attacks and counterattacks and the argument. But Donald Trump uh, came to power in 2016, uh, promising to drain the swamp. And his, as you quite rightly uh, said there, he attacked some of the very basic institutions that undergird the American system. So, so certainly it, it seems to us that um, he reflects a phenomenon that exists in American society. And, and I suppose what I'm trying to understand is, is what is that phenomenon? Why is it that so many Americans are willing to support a candidate who, who so fundamentally goes against those founding values of America? Um, generally speaking, uh, actually, Amer- it, it's um, at least one aspect of the equation. Generally speaking, Americans do not trust the government and have little faith in, in, in politicians. They call them, you know, they said you cannot, what the saying that goes amongst Americans, you cannot trust politicians or used car salesmen, you know. Um, but, but they do not trust politicians. So, for example, in, in a survey that uh, ran by the Pew Research in 2019, uh, the total people who, the total percentage of Americans who trust the government, quote-unquote, just about always or most of the time, you know, it's 17%, 17% of Americans, three, uh, um, 3%, 3% only trust them just about always, 14% most of the time. So if you imagine that kind of uh, view of the, of the government, that they will do the right thing, that they will be for the interests of the people. So they're always, uh, uh, Americans do not trust their government. And that's not just a government, that's the, whatever administration is in, uh, is, is, uh, is ruling. At the same time, and, and that, of course, create, you know, creates an atmosphere where 
they are susceptible to uh, uh, conspiracy theories, uh, to believing the, the worst in whatever they hear. And, and maybe it could very well be true, but it is definitely they already have the mindset, you know, that they can accept it. As a matter of fact, I mean, they, from 2007 on, you know, uh, the United States um, trust, the Americans' trust in the, in the government has not exceeded 30%. That's the maximum they have reached. So um, being an outsider, being somebody from, you know, who's not a politician, who's not from the swamp, who's not from this, uh, you know, uh, tainted um, environment, actually that played in his uh, favor. And the fact that he was not speaking as a politician and as politicians do, and he was not, you know, uh, he does not keep the, the protocols and the, the appropriateness that comes with the role, that actually played in his favor because he's speaking just like every average Joe um, in, in the United States and that, that actually helped him. Not to mention uh, the fact that he presented himself as a successful billionaire, you know. Um, so he not, he's not only somebody who's out an outsider, he's somebody who's brilliant with the economy, with finances. And he is going to do miracles with the, with the American economy. And American economy, by the way, in many ways, um, it's more important or, you know, it's viewed as a, a, the main point when it comes to the electability of a person. What can they do to the economy, for the economy? So he presented himself as a billionaire. Of course, now we know that this is not true. The, the, the man is, owes hundreds of millions of dollars. And throughout his campaign in, in 2020 and in 2016, a lot of people came out showing that he was actually a fraud in many ways. So, but the, his, that image that, that was given, presented them to the Americans, that he can, he can fix the economy, he knows the system because he's living under it. And while he's not poor, you know, he's somebody who can drip, get, you know, bridge the gap between the, the haves and have-nots as, as it's widening more and more with the, the, the you know, every day with the, with the capitalist economies. Uh, we know that America is a, is, a, is a deeply unequal country with the east and west coast, uh, but everything in between, uh, you know, there, there are large swathes of poverty and large swathes of deprivation um, especially amongst um, white Americans or blue-collar workers in America. And, um, you know, although he, he did win um, uh, seats in, in the metropolitan cities, you know, it, it seems like his most ardent supporters are from that uh, white, uh, blue-collar uh, class who, who feel, I suspect, who feel they have not benefited from the economic prosperity of America over the last 30 years. I mean, to what extent does that account for uh, the, the rise of Trump and, and the rise of his t- style of politics? I, I think to a great extent. And of course, with that uh, comes the issue, of, um, um, the issue of fear that he played uh, on, uh, the issue of uh, that... America, as you know it, and to be blunt, it is white and it's Protestant. Um, America, as you know it, is changing. Um, and we want to make sure, and your America is, is uh, disappearing. So we need to make sure that America stays, uh, you know, the way you know it should be. Um, so both of them, he played on their fears, the fears of change, the, the changes in the economy, 
economy that uh, you know is, is becoming more reliant on uh, high tech. Uh, you know, it's a high tech economy. Um, skill sets that your average white person or your average poor white person, uh, or, uh, you know, not co- no college degree or a white person. Um, they are not equipped to actually work in that economy. And of course, these positions are filled mainly by people from outside. They're immigrants, and most of them tend to be brown. So uh, they're not bringing Europeans to the United States to fill, in these, um, to fill these jobs, but actually most of them come you know, from countries that are uh, that, uh, brown skins. Most of them are not Christians altogether. Um, you know, so he played on that as well. And that that also helped him because uh, they do want to change. They do want to make sure that things do not keep rolling in the same path. Just just keep in, in, in mind also that Americans actually are very thirsty for, for change. They are not content with their system. They're not content with, the, with their politics. I remember the Obama slogans, uh, yes, we can, and changes we believe in, change, change we need, audacity of hope. All of these um, slogans were promising the people, you know, a change. And some changes were promised from day one. And if you, if you remember, Obama was asked, well, you promised to change this and this and that, and you haven't. So when, when he was asked that, he said, well, you know, it's a, it's a big ship. America is a big ship and it doesn't make sharp turns. So <laughs> it's going to be, it's going to take some time. But the, 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 the idea is people do not feel that they're being represented. And definitely if you follow the, the, the politics between the uh, Republicans and Democrats and the Hadlings and the, I don't know where people's representation really is. Um, I, I, you can't see it. You cannot see the quote-unquote will of the people or the um, interest of the people um, being presented in, in the haggling's and the horse tradings that, that goes on. It's really um, Democrats versus Republicans and, and both parties, both the Senate and the, the Congress, most of them, most of them are millionaires, especially the, the, the uh, Senate. Most of them are millionaires. Some of them are multimillionaires. So they're definitely not feeling the pain of your your you know, average, uh, you know, worker um, or average American. So, And we've seen a, a disturbing rise of white supremacy or white nativism in America. How much of what you've just described there of economic deprivation, a, a, a feeling that Washington is no longer serving them, uh, you know, uh, issues to do with migration and, and uh the, the general loss of jobs that uh, the white community or, or large swathes of the white community feel uh, that has accompanied globalization and how much of that is feeding into this white supremacy and, and, and actually how much of a problem is white supremacy in America? Um, if, actually, if, if, we, if there is one thing that is deeply rooted um, in the United States, and is very um, divisive, very, you know, and divides the United States, it's racism. Um, uh, it is, even though, and that's why really uh, change can never be simply by uh, putting a law, uh, a, a rule of law that it says, you know, this is legal, this is illegal. Uh, because racism is, is in a state of mind. It's, it's, a, it's a way of, you know, view of others um and that's that's why 
simply the, what, what, whatever achievements have been made um, in terms of equality, they really tend to be on the legal side, not the norm, the changes in, in not changing the, on the level of changes uh, or change of the, of the mindset of people. Still, it's deeply rooted um, and, and, you know, and still exists and it's very much alive. And all it needed, um, you know, was actually for Trump to come and allow it to, to flourish. But these changes, as, as you just mentioned, they, they, I mean, this, um, the view of race was, of course, compounded by the, the changes in the, in, the, in the job market and in the, with the globalization and with the skill sets and the, the immigration, whether it's legal or illegal. So um, it, it's always existed and it's still very much alive. You still have people who are, um, till today, they're, they're drive around in, in uh, various cities, various towns with the Confederate flag, which stood for that era of segregation. And, you know, they still have people, you know, march with white supremacy. And you see that there are several groups and militias and many of them do, actually, they do train and with, wepi, with heavy weapons, uh, we're not talking about guns, we're talking about semi-automatics. And, and we've, we've heard recently that uh, conspiracy theories are um, abound in America. The QAnon uh, conspiracy theory is, 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 seems to be accepted by large swathes of Americans, I would imagine, uh, by a very similar demographic to those who are, who are open to white supremacy. Well, and, and that's exactly uh, what I mentioned before, is that their, um, their lack of trust of the government, their lack of trust of the institutions that are there. They feel that um, they've been taken over. This institution, the country, if you wish, has been taken over by um, these uh, liberals who are um, the elites, um, the, the educated, the, the super wealthy elites, the Wall Street uh, people, you know, um, the, the, things of this nature, and they and they become very open for a uh, any conspiracy theory that you produce, and that's that was partially uh, that was in part uh, helpful to the the, the the Russian interference in the U.S. elections, into the stories that were spread about Hillary Clinton that spread about the, the, the stories that were spread about Obama being a Muslim and being not being born in the United States, which, by the way, Trump helped, uh, uh, you know, propagate. So they are very susceptible to, to, to these conspiracies and to anything that says it, things are not what they appear to be. Uh, and and a, the, the government is up to no good. Um, and, of course, with the, again, with the military, with militant mindset, is that and we can the constitution gives us the right to correct it with weapons if we if need be so uh, and that's that's why you find these militias training i mean what are you training for you know it's one thing to to shoot a gun to defend yourself for example uh, versus a at a militia where you you go into the woods and and you you spend you know weeks on training training for what it, it is this is the mindset that that enables you know um, all kinds of theories to be accept, uh, accepted, and of course, uh, by that easily manipulated. Because whoever spreading the, the, these uh, stories and whoever spreads these these uh, theories, uh, the conspiracies, they are they are out to achieve a certain goal. So, the, and that makes them more um, susceptible to to you know manipulation.
And tell me about coronavirus. The uh, virus has inflicted immense harm on American people. I mean, over 220,000 Americans, probably more, have died from the virus. And it's, uh, we are always told that the American system is the best form of government. America has exported liberal democracies around the world. America sees itself as a beacon of hope for uh, uh, for different societies and, and a, a model system. Yet, governance seems to have broken down. Uh, the coronavirus uh, is out of control in many of the states in America. And, uh, you know, the the failure of government speaks volumes, I think. How did it get to this point that America was not able to handle this, uh, the effects of this virus? Well, uh, currently there are, as of last night, there were uh, almost 224,000 Americans who have died from COVID. And, of course, the numbers, you know, we take them with a grain of salt in the sense that... Um, you know, they're always subject to how you define uh, corona-related uh, deaths, etc. But still, it is, it is definitely substantial. And it, it matches, you know, um, third world countries in, in terms of the, uh, the numbers, uh, you know, if you compare them with the total population. Um, and you can definitely, there are multiple reasons. Of course, um, in 2018, I mean, if you if you want to just put some factors that that led to this, in 2018, of course, this, uh, Trump disbanded disbanded the global health security and, and uh, biodefense unit, uh, which was responsible for the pandemic preparedness, uh, and this was established by uh, Barack Obama in 2015, 2016, 2016. Um, so um, he disbanded it. So really, the unit that's supposed to be um, able to deal with the pandemics and, and uh, bio, um, you know, biodefense uh, matters, um, it, it ceased to exist. Um, now, of course, the, the Trump factor, and probably, I mean, and, and that's definitely where the leadership, that the failure in the leadership comes. Um, the Trump's obsession with a strong economy, because again, actually, I would not, would not dismiss his view that even a strong economy outweighs the, the deaths of a quarter of a million Americans. Um, I, I, I would not dismiss it. I would not take it lightly because um, I, the United States or the Americans do view um, the strength of the economy as a vital matter, as something of, you know, of utmost importance. So uh, Trump is obsessed with a strong economy and, and uh, the idea that we want to make sure that it is always strong, not because really he cares about the the masses, but it is that's his ticket for 2020. So that's the, that's a way that you prove that you're able to pull it off for another four years. So um, that obsession, of course, contributed to pushing and ignoring health experts, even uh, health experts' recommendation, because even in the last debate. He was still talking to Joe Biden about, look, we cannot spend our, our time in the basement. We cannot, we cannot just tell the, the economy to stop while we're sitting in the basement. And of course, nobody says sit, sit in the basement and stop working or anything like that. So he took it either or. And of course, his, you know, his or was, uh, you know, we go back to work and he wants, he says, he still continued until the last uh, debate on Thursday. Uh, Thursday night, still uh, saying we need our schools to be open, we need our our store, you know, our uh, economy to be running because um, you won't have a country without it. 
if the economy stops functioning, you don't have a country to go out. And this resonates with people. So it's not, uh, uh, you can have nuanced arguments and discussions about it, but with, for the average person, um, I would say that this, this resonates with them, that yes, we need to go back. Not only that, I mean, back to the idea of the, the American mindset. You have demonstrations, uh, Brother Jalal, you have demonstrations in the street refusing to wear masks. Why? Because I'm an American. I'm an American. What does an American have to do with wearing a mask? It's a virus. It doesn't care what your citizenship or your nationality is. The mindset is that I'm an American. I'm exceptional. I am different. I am better. Even the virus, you know, is uh, um, has you know has no way to to uh, harm me. That mindset, that mindset, actually is is what he's playing on as well. So, uh, and of course, the extent of his knowledge, you've heard about of his suggestions to inject bleach and, uh, you know, uh, and of course, and him refusing to wear a mask. And of course, when he refused to, get, to wear a mask and he came out positive, three days later, he came out of the hospital saying, well, I learned a lot. So even that was actually a, an achievement for him that I, I actually, you know, uh, you know, I went and I got it and I came out learning a lot. Now I know a lot and uh, still insisted in the last debate, 99, I'm not sure if it's 99.9%, he said, or just 99% that uh, of young people, you know, who catch it, recover. And for him, this, is, this makes perfect sense because, so if you recover, what's the big deal? Go catch it, but keep working. He still does not take responsibility. So you're the president. Why did this happen? Well, don't blame me, blame China, because it came from China. And uh, China is the one who's, uh, you know, who's responsible for it. But why are Americans so willing to accept his excuses, even though they uh, just sound incredulous to most people? Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is, this is the, the, where the country is at now. It's not a matter of being divided. And maybe partially it's because of the, the way we receive our news. Because if I watch CNN and uh, the Huffington Post or read the Huffington Post and read, um, you know, certain types of, I'm exposed to certain media and I get my um, media, my news every day tailored to me. I only see one part of the equation. Um, and these people who watch the Fox News and the, the conservative, uh, you know, media, um, and then they only see the good spin of Trump. So I think the country is not just divided, but now it's, we're uh, entrenched. Uh, no, no, nobody's willing to, to suggest. And that's why many um, you know, analysts would tell you that all of this campaigning, all of this is it's fine. But very few people who are, uh, who are going to be uh, you know, swayed this way or that way because they're pretty much set. I mean, it seems to me that the differences in America are not concilable and uh, we're now heading towards some level of civil strife. I mean, how far do you buy the argument that uh, America is heading towards another civil war? It is, it's definitely possible. And, and uh, we should also keep in mind that, that Trump himself said that he might not let go of the, you know, he might refuse to leave the White House. So uh, uh, it's, it's just, uh, you never thought that this would happen. You think that you're in one of the Muslim countries, really. But it's, uh, it's definitely possible. For sure, law, law, law enforcement are preparing for that scenario, by the way. So um, for, to start with, 
you have Trump created this atmosphere of, uh, for, you know, the atmosphere, the readiness for violence by, as I said, discrediting the process itself, telling his voters, uh, his, his followers, go into the polls and watch very carefully. Um, and now just yesterday they were reporting um, some intimidation uh, tactics on, in, you know, in, in voting places, in voting centers. He told the Proud Boys, which is a far-right extremist group, they said, stand back and stand by, stand by. You know, uh, so when he, uh, this is, this is, this is, he's creating that atmosphere where it is possible. And as I said, the Proud Boys, and, and there are several others like them. Uh, we're now, by the way, the FBI um, came out with a report that the, uh, the most threats uh, to the United States are actually from white supremacy groups, not from, uh, you know, terrorism as related to, uh, Muslims and, and uh, jihadists and things like that. It's actually those, the, the white supremacy groups. Uh, Time magazine published an article just yesterday uh, that police forces across the nation are taking unprecedented steps to brace for potential disruption at the polls and post-election violence. Uh, AP News reported that FBI and local officials in several states um, have been conducting drills running through worst case scenarios, setting up command centers to improve coordination on reports of violence and voter intimidation. Um, several analysts, uh, you know, such as uh, Thomas Friedman of, um, uh, of the New York Times, as he mentioned in the statement of CNN, he's actually, uh, he anticipated a, uh, uh, a civil war, you know, I mean, again, I, I I don't want to, you know, to blow it out of proportion. I think that it is possible, but again, the impact and, and probably there will be some, you know, here and there, but um, depending on which state and especially the, the, the contended states or the, the, uh, the, the ones that could go this either way and where they're allowed to wear weapons. It's actually in Virginia, they just, uh, people are allowed to, to carry guns and carry weapons. And on election days now, they just banned it. Uh, they, they banned them saying that you cannot wear, you know, you cannot carry weapons on that day because out of fear for that. So it's definitely an atmosphere that is created that a level that, that, that the, the country has descended to that I would say it's unprecedented in the, in the recent history. And there's a lot of discussion about uh, the foreign policies of Biden and Trump and who will be better uh, for Muslims. Um, I mean, before we get to who would be better for Muslims, I mean, do you see from your analysis, are there great differences between the two on on foreign policy issues? Well, from, from a foreign policy perspective, um, uh, I, without discussing it, who's better, but I would say that Trump's agenda has been to, 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 be, um, to be more inward um, not to uh, not to expand, not to go outside of it. Uh, it's it's uh, the, the country's borders because he views any uh, dollar that's spent, let's say, on Afghanistan, for example, or in Syria, as a waste of money, because because again of that mindset of only the economy, only the financial aspect of it. Because to be frank, he doesn't understand what the United States is doing. Refuses to listen to the morning. Um, briefing, you know, he does not read the morning security briefs that, that every president, you know, receives. Um, how will he know? If, if he doesn't, you know, listen to the advisors and take their opinions, how, how will he understand? 
So he doesn't understand what, what is uh, what's there, but his policy, the, Trump's policy is, um, I want to bring the, the, report, the, the troops back. So I want them back from Afghanistan and he promised to pull them, uh, pull them back before Christmas. Um, I want them out of uh, Syria and he got, uh, you know, most of them out of Syria. He got, uh, you know, he's, he's getting them out of Iraq. Um, and that, that in terms of the, the, you know, the extent of his foreign policy as, really, as relates to the Muslims. Biden is a continuation of, a, of Obama. Biden is, an, is, is, as we say in Arabic, the son of the institution. He's, he's the product of the institution. 47 years in the institution. He's, he's definitely institutionalized. He definitely represents the status quo, uh, which Obama, I mean, uh, Trump uh, came in and challenged. But uh, so he's going to continue. And, and he says he's going to continue the path that Obama before Trump uh, set. And, and uh, from, a, uh, from the perspective of Muslims in America, there, there seems to be a, uh, you know, a, a groundswell, I suppose, of support for uh, Biden in this election. And uh, many argue that uh, Biden at least will be the lesser of the two evils. And, uh, and so the, the, the conclusion is that uh, Biden will probably serve the Muslim community better than uh, the Republicans or the Trump administration. I mean, how do you analyze that debate and, and where do you sit in, in that debate? Yeah, I would, I would say, I say actually, in generally, generally speaking, Muslims appear to be eager to be accepted, period. So whoever accepts them, they'll vote for him. Um, whoever shows some civility uh, when talking to Muslims or about Muslims, Muslims will support him uh, regardless of whether their, his agenda or her agenda is consist- consistent with Islamic values or, or not. Um, in, in my humble view, Muslims have been so beaten up so much that it's just now they just want to appear to be just normal, just like everybody else. So um, and really the, the question of the lesser of two evils, how do I even separate between the... Um, uh, the foreign policy and the domestic policy in terms of the evaluating the, the, uh, the principle of lesser of two evils, because you cannot divide it. The, the, the problem here as, as just to, to, to um, just set, set one thing from a fiqhi perspective, when we take a talk about two evils, when we have to establish something, they're both evil. And, and most Muslims glaze over this as um, it's not important. Actually, no, it is very important to say that they're both evil, meaning what? They're both haram. So when we talk about voting and you talk about the lesser of two evils, it means that both of them are presenting agendas that Islam does not accept. Yet one of them is less than the other. Okay. So when we say the lesser of two evils, you are, we are talking about a fiqhi rule. Um, that in its simple form, somebody is starving, about to die, and, and they are almost certain that if they don't eat, they will die. Okay, yeah, so either, either certain or more likelihood, what they call you know, they are with the more likelihood that they will die. So should that person go steal or not? So the, the answer is yes, the lesser of two evils, theft is lesser of an evil, lesser of a haram, if you wish than actually causing your own death. So you go and steal. However, the fuqaha, the jurists, came and they said, okay, but when you steal, you are only allowed to steal what is, what is enough 
to maintain your life, to sustain your life, meaning to keep you alive, not to fill your stomach. Even the, the idea of filling your stomach is, is, not, is not allowed. You cannot go eat a dead animal, you know, because you're starving, but then get full. No, you only eat, you know, for what is sufficient for you so that you don't die. Now, the, keep in mind, when we talk about or the lesser of two evils or the lesser of two um, bad things, it is Islam who, sets, who says that this is evil and this is evil. It's not rational. It's not logic. It is Islam. It is the fiqh that actually sets that, you know, uh, the theft is less of a sin than dying, you know, causing your own death. So then, based on that, you're given that permissibility, you know, to go and uh, commit the lesser harm, and there's no sin in that. But so now, when we apply this to the United States uh, elections, or really any election, and with, uh, with Muslims or non-Muslims, so even if you have two Muslims who have non-Islamic agendas and they're running with it, um, still the same rule applies. So if you are going to engage in it, you know, um, and actually I forgot one, one, uh, one caveat that, that needs to be attached to the rule. There's no third option. So there's no third option. So you cannot, if, if there's a third option, so be between theft and dying, you know, meaning that don't steal, there is maybe your aunt is living down, you know, a few miles from here, maybe you can make it and, and get some food or whatever, you know, or maybe you can beg and get some, some uh, food from people then the, the, uh, the, two, the second evil, the idea of theft becomes null and void. So the rule does not apply. So the, the, here, when we say lesser of two evils, from a fiqhi perspective, I need to know, uh, one, who is more harmful, you know, the agenda of Trump or the agenda of Biden? And how did we reach that? And the third, the third point is, is there a third way? Is there something else that we Muslims can do? This, unfortunately, is left up to your average Muslim to determine what evil is when it comes to a complex issue such as foreign policy and domestic policy. Um, you know, which is more uh, of, a, um, uh, of a harm? Which is more of an evil? Is it somebody who says, okay, I don't want Muslims to come to this country? Uh, or somebody who's, who's calling for, um, you know, the first one, I don't want Muslims to come to this country, and I'm against, you know, uh, homosexuality, for example, just because it's a you know, uh, glaring issue in the minds of Muslims. Um, but I'm against that. And somebody who says, I am, I'm, I'm going to allow Muslims to come in, but at the same time, I am for uh, support of vile things or, or things that uh, go against your religion. Uh, Muslims, which one uh, is an, more of an evil? And who actually gets to decide? Is it the average Muslim? The average Muslim is not equipped to decide whether there is a, uh, that, that this is an evil or that, how do they assist? Because this is a form of shtihad. This is a form of uh, a fiqh that your, your average Muslim does not have. The, the, the sad part is that Muslims are given this rule, and which, by the way, maybe people my generation discussed it. Unfortunately, now it's given. Um, they, they, it's hardly even the issue of two evils. Now, look, you know, this guy is a, um, you know, 
is bad because look at look at the way he behaves, referring to Trump, and look at uh, Biden how respectful, and he even said, inshallah, in the uh, uh, we're on that level, you know. Uh, and if you don't, if you say I'm not for voting or I'm not uh, convinced that I should vote, um, which many non-Muslims do, by the way, or they, many non-Muslims do not vote because they tell you that um, I'm not convinced that this actually changes anything. We Muslims, you will find many people jumping on you that you're you're actually uh, you're again you know you're against uh, Muslim progress and the well-being of Muslims, etc. Okay, so the options uh, available to Muslims are what? Uh, if you say that um, it doesn't make sense to vote for any one of the two sides, then uh, what should the Muslims do uh, to um, further their uh, causes in uh, society? There is a third way. There's, how about a mass, you know, how about a grassroots movements that Muslims can start? Just look at, in, if we look at the American society, to look at the civil rights movement in the United States. The civil rights movement was not won by, by, by voting. Actually, civil rights movement and, and the change that took place, you know, with its, all its limitations and which we are still living today, um, it was not achieved, sim- achieved simply by go vote for X and vote for Y. It was actually done by, you know, um, the grassroots movement coordination amongst people with marches, with civil disobediences, with demonstrations, with, you know, uh, challenging the narrative, challenging the, the, you know, about race, about color, etc. And, and they, they moved forward. Uh, I would argue the same, the same about the feminist uh, movement uh, that they that whatever achievements they have achieved, it was not simply because they voted for X or Y. It was again through the grassroots work that they did to achieve their goal. Unfortunately, we Muslims want uh, uh, you know ready meals. You know, just uh, I want to be my involvement with the well-being of Muslim of Muslims. I wanted to be simply showing up on uh, November third, you know, or before. Go vote. Click on that button and go home and watch Netflix. You are not going to achieve anything. Even, even if I just shift gears a little bit, even from a purely political um, you know, uh, approach just to voting, if you want to be uh, effective in your vote, you don't just vote. Your vote has to have a, a value. So in other words, if I'm going to vote for Biden or for Trump, I would have my representation, my, my block representatives will meet with the candidate and they would tell them, okay, what are you going to do for us? Because we have about 8 million Muslims who are going to vote. What do you want for, you know, what can you do for us? Then that candidate is going to make a commitment. We are going to do, you know, X for you. And we say, okay, then go out and make, make that statement public and we will endorse you. So the, the candidate goes out and makes a statement public. And now he's bound by what he declared. Well, as much as you can believe the politician, but they make the public statement. And after that, you need to also have, as a voting block, you need to have a, um, uh, a mechanism to hold him accountable when he does not, um, you know, when he does not deliver. I'm saying none of that is taking place, to my knowledge. None of that. It is simply go vote, where voting has become... an end in itself. Voting is not an end in itself. Voting is a tool. Voting is simply a tool. 
And let's debate whether it's halal or haram, and we will say, for argument's sake, it is halal. There's no problem. You know, let the fuqaha disagree, and let the jurists come out with that, it's a halal. It's still a tool. Uh, We need to see whether, first of all, what our agenda is, what are we trying to accomplish in the United States, to see whether this tool fits in achieving that agenda or not. Maybe while it is halal, it is mubah, it's allowed, we would choose not to use it because it doesn't serve our interests. Maybe. And maybe we will use it. Or some of us will use it, some of us will, will, will not. But these are the things that, that need to be discussed beyond just the idea of just vote, 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 go out and vote, etc. The fiqh rule needs to be applied properly. And the scholars really need to intervene to, to come out and say that, yes, based on the agenda, of X and Y, we see that this is more harmful than that. So you Muslims, you should vote for this, or you should vote for that. And this is, this is, these are the reasons. You said there's an absence of uh, coordinated thinking, a grassroots movement, and uh, the Muslim community haven't organized themselves and secured these fundamental principles of engagement that um, uh, you talk of? I mean, what are the impediments in the way of the Muslim community? Part of it, I would say, is legal, because uh, part of it is legal. Um, and that's the, the easy part to, to figure out, because um, non-for-profit organizations in the United States are not allowed to engage in, uh, in political uh, activities. Um, so they cannot endorse a candidate. They cannot tell you the masjid of so-and-so endorse a candidate, because if they do, uh, they would lose their, um, you know, non-for-profit status, and and uh, which allows for donations with with tax credits and things of this nature. Um, so, as as institutions that are in place, they are not going to be involved in this. So, whatever is going to take place, it has to be from outside of that, it, or it has to be registered, or it has to be an institution that's registered as a political. Um, you know, with political aim, and, and that's how it gets its uh, it, it get to function. So this does not mean that we cannot reach out to the to the Muslim leadership and get them to to mobilize. But I really think um, the 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 big question that's still left out is a uh, that question of not even coordination to work is to work towards what. Uh, our Prophet ﷺ lived in Mecca and had a goal, you know, and uh, the goal of Rasul ﷺ was to establish Islam. The Sahaba, radiallahu anhum, who migrated to Abyssinia and stayed in Abyssinia, and some of them stayed well after the establishment of the Islamic State in Medina and came back, actually, uh, some of them around the, the Battle of Khaybar, which was about the, the fifth year of the Hijrah. So they had a goal of just maintaining their, their, their identity as Muslims and, and keeping intact, just practicing their deal with their families, and that was it. I'm saying we as Muslim communities, not just in the United States, really, um, you know, globally, especially in, in, the, in the Western world, and definitely in the United States, um, we need to have that, the, the idea first to come together to what are we trying to achieve? What is our vision for the United States? What do we want to um, What do we want to do to, for this society? Um, most people, when they say what we want to do for this society, they think of payback as in I was given opportunity, I was there, you know, and therefore I need to be, um, you know, be involved in the civics of the society and the voting, etc. 
And I would say this is not uh, uh, this is not the way we think, or as as Muslims, the Muslim Muslims is way of thinking and rules are derived from their uh, uh, you know legislative sources. They don't come from the civics and they from from what I owe, what I don't owe. Um, what our religion tells us that we, if you wish, owe the people uh, is that we need to carry the. the the, the da'wah of Islam, the guidance of Islam to these people. Uh, now after 9-11, you know, uh, it's been, it, it's really, the, well, even what we used to see as da'wah tables in the streets and people talking to non-Muslims, that is virtually non-existent, you know, um, because Muslims just went back into their cocoons in their masajid and um, the idea of even uh, approaching the, the society has become something that's just unimaginable because of all this negativity. Still, um, you know, Muslims need to discuss what does Islam, what does our aqidah um, require us to do? Because the, we only think in, in one direction. We think that by, you know, it's okay, we are Muslims, we are, and uh, we don't carry da'wah to non-Muslims. Non and we think that that actually is fine. Actually, it has a very bad repercussions and very bad impact on our children, because our children, you know, they have to believe, they have to have confidence in in the Islamic values and Islamic ideas as being valid. How do they see that? Not because I, as a father, tell my children, you know, your Islam is is, is right, but rather, but rather how they see it interact with other beliefs and how they see it, you know, function with other beliefs. And that's why I'm saying that our lack of vision, lack of activity um, has had, you know, devastating effects even on our, you know, on our youth. As a matter of fact, even the, the voting itself, and that's something that's seldom talked about. Uh, when we talk about voting and when we voted for this candidate and that candidate, um, we don't know the kind of negative impact that has had on our children. Now, amongst Muslim youth, when you say um, LGBTQ, they tell you, why not? What is the problem? And we had, and, and they, some of them would even view that, in, that Islam uh, has deficiency in not recognizing their rights. After all, the Pope just gave them their union uh, rights, right? So, uh, um, you know, if you talk about these things in the masajid, you will have Muslim youth coming and challenging you after khutbah of the Jum'ah if you talk about these things. Um, and it's, it's because, again, they are, they are, we don't know that when we give our vote to, to this person or that person functioning within the system, within these parameters, um, it's going to rub off on our children in a, in a certain way. And what has not been done amongst Muslims now is really a study. Okay, you voted for Obama, you voted for Bush before him, you know, um, you know Bush Jr., you voted for uh, Obama, now you voted for uh, Biden. How has that one impacted your interests, the Muslim interests? What has it achieved for us, aside from a good speech by Obama? But what has it given us as Muslims? And two, has it had any negative impact on our uh, youth? I don't know of any study that has done uh, that um, to see that, to show that this is something that even we should be thinking about or not. And so again, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to say, without going into the fiqh discussion, even though we should, this is an Islamic matter. 
but without going to the fiqh discussion of which is the lesser evil, two evils, etc., um, the, the, we need to think about our role as Muslims in the United States and what, what should we be doing as dictated by our aqidah, by our identity, by our, the fact that we are part of the best ummah that's out to mankind. I think that's, that's the, the, the starting point. And once we know what our role is based on our Islam and Islamic values and our Islamic rules, then everything falls in place, what we need to do, what we don't need to do. And that is definitely um, a discussion, uh, you know, that's really worth having. And a number of, finally, uh, Brother Muhammad, a number of Muslims have been successful in uh, gaining seats in the Congress and, um, uh, and uh, have established a, a Muslim caucus within uh, the Democratic Party in particular. But there are some prominent Muslims who have also uh, who have connections with the Republicans. From from what you've said so far, I mean, uh, how valuable is this? Well, uh, you have in the uh, in the Congress, for example, we have Ilhan Omar, uh, a Somali refugee uh, Muslim, um, and you have uh, Rashid Atleb. Um and and so there are two Muslims. So uh, the the question is really, what have they achieved? I mean, when they when they first started, and both of them were are, were junior, uh, Ilhan and Atleb. Uh, they were both junior um, uh, congresswomen. So when they started, they started big and they talked against Israel and against uh, the, the policies of the, the Israelis, etc. As if really they thought that this was just uh, an open playground. Um, and with, in no time, they had their meeting with, uh, you know, with Pelosi and, and, uh, and they toned down the criticism tremendously. So in terms of creating noise, they managed to create some noise. Uh, which, of course, always the, you have an establishment that's going to manage it and present it in a negative way. But so, and it was. So they became, they are anti-Semites and, and, and uh, anti-the state of Israel, etc. But how successful have they been in passing anything that is close to helping Muslims in any shape or form? Absolutely zero. Absolutely zero. So not to minimize the noise, sometimes the noise is needed and sometimes it's good, but it did not go beyond uh, that. Um, and, you know, you find actually a bill that was, that was passed. If you talk about a bill that was passed or a project for a law or a suggestion for a law that was passed by Ilhan Omar or submitted by Ilhan Omar was about the uh, kingdom of Brunei when they decided to uh, implement, quote-unquote, their Sharia rules. And they, she suggested boycotting them, et cetera, because how could they, you know, prevent, you know, homosexual acts? How could they make that punishable by law? How could they uh, talk against, um, you know, adultery? And uh, so you start saying, um, why, <laughs> you know, you're a Muslim, at least nobody forced you to do this. Just stay quiet if you, if you don't. Why, why, why would you do this? Uh, because she's talking about this not representing us. Uh, you know, this does not represent us. Um, and I'm not talking about here that the, the Frunai was implementing Islam correctly, not at all. But I'm saying that attacking that very ideas, certain ideas, you know, maybe you can come out and say that this is done wrong or so, something like that. From where I'm standing and then leaving the haram and halal and the idea of legislation and the idea, because unfortunately now nobody talks halal and haram. Um, the idea of legislation and all of this, put it aside, in terms of just effectiveness, I, I really don't see any, any impact at all. 
Jazakallah khair, Baba Muhammad Hanini. Thank you for your time today. And it's been really fascinating to to hear your your perspectives on U.S. politics. And um, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala keep you and the Muslim community in America safe over the coming few weeks and months. Barakallah and it's been my pleasure. Jazakallah khair. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.